podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 243, Navigating Special Use Airspace, coming up next in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Hey folks, welcome to the show about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Today we discuss flying around and through special use airspace, what we need to do to navigate. And this evening we have with us uh, the the regular crew, the Motley crew here, I'll call them this evening. Uh, Joining us is Bill English. Hey, Billy, how you doing? Hey, doing, uh, doing pretty good, Carl. Awesome. And uh, we're also trying to get back to normal with Victoria. Victoria, how are we doing this evening? Doing just fine. Awesome. And that was a great interview, by the way, the last podcast. Don't forget to go back and check that out. That was just a great ladies' takeover of the podcast. Awesome job on that. It was (laughs) a lot of fun. Tom Frick is also joining us this evening. Tom, welcome. Hey, Carl. How's it going? Oh, it's wonderful, wonderful. And Russ Rosleski. Russ, good to hear from you again, man. Yeah, it's great to be on again, Carl. Yeah, good to hear everybody here, and I can't wait to get into this topic of navigating around special use airspace. Let's do the pre-flight. Before we get started, just a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is actually sponsored by PlainEnglishSim.com. It's that app-based aviation radio simulator that we discussed in another episode. What they're doing is they're putting out a coupon so you can receive a free scholarships guide and of course, a coupon code is Plain English Sim, and you can receive a free scholarships guide gratis of PlainEnglishSim.com. And uh, by the way, we just uh, updated the numbers on the scholarships guide. We are counting the number we have. I know we always say that we have over 50 million in scholarships. Uh, we are about a quarter of a way through counting how many we actually have. Are we way underestimated. We have over 57 million scholarships, $57 million in scholarships, and 200 scholarships so far. And uh, there's quite a few more that we're counting. So if you're looking to get some money to do some flight training, do some additional training, additional ratings, seaplane ratings, etc., that's where you need to go. Check it out over at aviationcareerspodcast.com. Don't forget to use that code, plain English sim. News and announcements. Let's move on to that. First of all, I also want to do something a little bit different. Also, write us. Go to stuckmikeavcast.com on the contact page and let us know some of your achievements. So I want to give a shout-out and congratulations to Jonathan Mass and also Skeeter Moreno on obtaining their commercial pilot certificate. Yeehaw, that was great. Good job to both of you. Also, during this uh, crisis, two people that are right here local went over to Winter Haven at Jack Brown Seaplane Base. Congratulations to Justin Gentle and Ashley Tharp on both getting their commercial seaplane pilot certificate. Great job. Wonderful job there by the by both of you. Now entering cruise flight. 
Anyway, let's get on to the topic here this evening, and uh, it's suggested by a, a member of our crew here that uh, wanted to talk a little bit about special use airspace and navigating around special use airspace. And one of the things that we all sometimes uh, have to do in, is go on cross countries to places we don't know, and we see these different air types of airspace that we don't know much about, and their special use airspace. So we're going to talk a, a little bit more about that, do a little bit of a deep dive into it, because of the fact that we can get ourselves into a little bit of trouble if we don't actually navigate around them properly. That's for sure. But you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people ask me is, you know, what what in the world is special use airspace? And so we're going to talk a, a little bit about just special use airspace in this one. So, uh, you know, temporary flight restrictions, et cetera, aside, just special use airspace. And just to, to go along with basically what they say in the AIM, this special use airspace, uh, SUA, some people call it, but I, I say special use airspace, it's airspace where the activities have to be confined because of the nature of that activity. Or there may be limits on are imposed on the aircraft that are operations that are not part of those activities. So it's either the people that are in there have to be confined or the aircraft that are, are might be inside that aircraft in that airspace have limitations on them. So again, it's airspace where an activities must be confined because of their nature or where limitations are imposed upon aircraft operations that aren't part of those activities. Or in other cases, it could be both of those. Uh, these are depicted on aeronautical charts uh, and you can see almost every one of those special use airspace. And uh, there's a, a couple of them that aren't in there though that you may not see and uh, there are a couple of them being one of them being a controlled firing area and I know I used to fly above uh, uh, West Point quite a bit and they have this controlled firing area and that's actually not in uh, the special use airspace as depicted there are a couple of those that are depicted though out there uh, also a couple things that aren't out there uh, are like even, you know, we talk about MOAs, we're going to get into that. Uh, temporary military operation areas, they can be temporary and also temporary restricted areas. Basically, anything that's temporary, where uh, in my mind, the way I like to look at controlled firing areas as being temporary. Um, so before we dive into this, I think there's there's one thing that I love to do, and, and I like to have some tool that I can use. And Tom has a really good tool, and I, I love teaching my students this, but but Tom, I, I, I love what you've, you've brought up to this as far as the discussion is concerned, how we can remember this special use airspace. And then, of course, we'll dive into what those things are. So Tom, how are we going to remember what the different special use airspace out there? Sure. So, so um, you know, we, we learn a lot through aviation, through mnemonics, and uh, I picked this one up when I was working on my commercial because I was trying to remember all of the special use airspace, and uh, I came across, and I'll, I'll give a shout out, it's uh, Todd Scott Aviation was the first place I ever saw this, and he has a whole list of mnemonics and stuff like that, but the one that he had on there, and I give the shout out because he, he um, put special use airspace as McPron, and then said it was the Scottish Shrimp. And the first time I ever read that, I haven't forgotten it since. I mean, it was just too easy to remember McPron, the Scottish Shrimp. So the McPron stands for military operations areas, controlled firing areas, prohibited areas, restricted areas, alert areas, warning areas, and national security areas. And there you have your McPron. The Dude, that's awesome. The McPron, the Scottish Shrimp. 
And that is, I guess I will remember that one. That's, You know what would be kind of cool? Let's come up with a kind of a graphic, if we can, with McPron, the Scottish shrimp, and try to, to go from there. Maybe maybe this website that you were talking about has that. By the way, let's let's put that in the show notes where you found out about that. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about the different use uh, using the McPron. But um, well, one of the things I think we need to talk about first is our what special use airspace we commonly encounter because I think it's good for us to relate uh, and also if you the listener has something to relate please write us and just go to the contact page but uh, I'll start off basically with mine I'm here in you know the Florida central Florida area and one of the places that uh, I many times have to bump into and well I shouldn't say that bump into is probably the wrong word I have to navigate around is Avon Park the military operations area and uh, that's part of the McDill Air Force Base and that is a large large area interestingly enough about that Avon Park area it was really cool because when they uh, one of the guys I was flying with he used to fly A10s and he said they used to use that range for uh, for some target practice and stuff like that so very large area out there and I know Tom and I we've actually had to move you know navigate around that and I'm not sure if it was with a flight uh, with you uh, the time when we were talking to air traffic control and we were navigating around the military operations area where they actually told us that, yeah, you guys can go through that because the MOA is not hot. Um, I'm not even sure if that's uh, as far as the military operations area not being hot. Usually they say it's not active. And that's one of the things that you really have to make sure of before you actually operate in that. So let's let's dig into a little bit of military operations areas. And also, I'd like to hear from some of the other co-hosts here as far as that's concerned. But let me, since I'm starting with this story, the... The MOAs basically are, they have, you know, both obviously lateral limits, uh, vertical limits, and they really, what their their sole, their primary, excuse me, their primary purpose is separating military traffic activities from IFR traffic, right? Military traffic from IFR traffic. I know a lot of times when I'm flying down the East Coast uh, in, I guess it's Cal- Carolinas and Georgia in that area. They'll tell me, hey, you know, the MO, the MOA is hot, so you need to, it's active, you need to remain clear. So if you're flying in that area, many times they make you kind of navigate all the way around that airspace. It, it can make your cross-country planning uh, a little bit of a, a tricky. And this is where I think both operating and navigating around, we have to think, too, not just along the lines of what we need to do to get into the airspace and, and around the airspace, but also planning so that we if we have to we can go around those modes another reason we need to do that obviously is so we have enough fuel so we can make make it through that area so uh, the traffic that is participating of course uh, ATC will allow you through there if, if they feel that it's active or not or they know that's active or not active uh, and they'll kind of restrict it if uh, if you really can't go through that area or if it's a time there's actually another interesting thing a lot of times those um, military operations areas they go active at a certain time uh, so you, what you need to do is uh, kind of find out those you can just call the facility etc so how in the world do we find out about that well we look on our charts now one thing that's been a challenge for me is now you know now that in the past year I've gotten back into aviation using for flight is what I use is trying to figure out what those MOAs are and it's actually fairly simple is being able to look at it on the chart by touching it right on my iPad. Uh, so really finding out who the facility is that I need to talk to and then start talking to them. IFR, obviously, uh, they're going to provide that separation. But when I'm flying VFR, 
little bit different, you know. So under VFR, you really want to, you know, click on that chart, find out who it is, talk to the controlling facility, and ask them, hey, can I fly through this? Going back to what I was talking about with Tom and I flying down to Okeechobee, there was a point where, you know, we usually navigate south and then we go towards the east to get around it coming from the Lakeland area. Uh, this one time, the controller, because we we're getting flight filing, said, hey, you know, the MOA there is not active right now. You can go ahead and uh, fly through there. So that's actually a, a great, you know, a wonderful resource. So the other way you can obviously find out about MOAs is call flight service or go online, uh, contact, and find out if it's going to be active during the, the actual time that you're in there. They can go uh, active at any time also. Some MOAs, even uh, for the most part, they're planned but can also be unplanned. Uh, so make sure when you're going through a MOA, before you go through, contact the controlling agency, find out uh, if they're actually active right now, and make sure you uh, get clearance through there. The permanent uh, MOAs, by the way, are on the chart. They're, uh, they're o almost all of them are out there, but there are some that are temporary ones that aren't charted. And those are things you need to do by finding out your, you know, you know going through your notams and stuff like that. So, um, so that's MOAs and military operations areas. Um, I know uh, many of us um, talk a little bit about, you know, going through these MOAs and having issues with having air, airplanes coming flying by them and not realizing they're there. But they, a lot of times, aren't in MOAs, and that's going to be something else we're going to talk about. So, so right now, so yeah, that was that's the experience I've had navigating around uh, some of those uh, airspace there with the MOAs. How about Bill? I think you have uh, some experience uh, flying around some of these different airspace. We're talking about different uh, airspace, uh, special use airspace that we personally encounter. Um, yes, but I think I will yield my time for the moment to Russ because I think he wants to talk a little bit about MOAs and about. Um, what happens when a MOA grows really tall and what it's called then? Yeah, that's right, Bill. Thanks uh, for that. Um, yeah, I, I, we have a, out here in Oklahoma, we have quite a few MOAs. Uh, we have several Air Force bases and they have their pilot training organizations and they do a lot of flying in MOAs. So, you know, kind of like Carl was talking about, about finding, you know, when they're active or not is, is really important. And, you know, when I do a flight review or something like that, and we talk about flight planning and, you know, we talk about, you know, flying almost any direction from here, you're, you're going to have some kind of a MOA in the way. And of course, one of the things the the pilot will usually state is, well, you know, we're, we can fly through a MOA VFR, right? And then, well, yeah, you can, but you know, then we start talking about, should you? And something that, uh, that, uh, I think is kind of, kind of highlights the, the importance of maybe you shouldn't just blunder through the MOA, you know, uh, just flying through whenever you want. Like we're allowed to, but maybe it isn't such a good idea if you think about who's using that MOA. Uh, now we, we say, okay, it's the military. Yeah, it is usually, but at least around here, a lot of the MOAs are being used for pilot training, um, in rather fast airplanes. So, so some of the pilots that are in this MOA flying around that you're flying your, you know, Cherokee or whatever through, you know, we're talking, you know, it might be a 24 year old Lieutenant, uh, with, you know, a hundred hours or something flying a supersonic jet on his first solo or second solo or well, you know, whatever in the syllabus is. Well, <laughs> now 
I don't know about everybody else, but I'm sure that it, when I had a hundred hours or so, if I was in command of a supersonic jet, <laughs> my brain would probably still be, you know, on the runway when I'm still up in the air, right? So uh, way behind the airplane, situational awareness is probably, you know, not as good as it could be. That's an airspace that I think I, I would prefer to give these people a wide berth. You never know who's in there. You don't know what they're doing. You don't know what their capabilities are. Sure, the military is you know, one of the greatest flight training organizations in the world, absolutely. But you're still faced with very young, very inexperienced pilots and, and instructors who are trying to do the normal instructor things you know, and, and look out for traffic and watch what their student's doing and some of these uh, airplanes, they can't, you know, the instructor can't see very well ahead because the student is sitting in front of them. So, uh, just, just being aware of, of that kind of combination of factors really makes me want to kind of stay away from them all. But we do have, um, uh, the opportunity, especially around here, you know, I've, I've done it numerous times where if I need to go through the MOA, ATC will, uh, have the, uh, participating aircraft, the military aircraft, They'll just kind of block them off or, you know, don't go west of here or they'll, you know, keep them above a certain altitude. And if they can do that and it works for their training and it works for my flight, then that's that's great. Everybody's working together. Uh, but we do try to stay stay out of their way as much as possible. Um, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask you, in, so to expand on that in your experience, maybe can you give a percentage how many times you actually do are able to get into the MOAs or how many times you're turned down? Is there any way to kind of get a feel for that? Not really. <laughs> it seems like I'm not sure if it depends on the um, the nature of the training going on in there or the uh, the uh, controller themselves. <laughs> you know what they're willing to work with. I'm not sure. Uh, there's some so in southwestern Oklahoma. Uh, there's some some MOAs down that way, and I have always gotten around routed around those. Uh, if I'm IFR, it's just a you know amendment to my routing advisor to the copy, and I know it's coming, and I know what it's going to be. Uh, that's for Shepard Air Force Base down that way. Um, VFR, that you know, they'll request I go around, of course. Uh, the ones up nor- northern Oklahoma for Vance Air Force Base, I've had a lot more luck going through those. So maybe the mission is different enough, or the controllers, or the airspace, or something like that. But uh, I've had success, you know, even if I'm IFR, they won't route me around. They'll say, okay, can you maintain, you know, 10,000 and, and they'll have the, the traffic, you know, stay at 11,000 or above for their, their maneuvers. And I guess that works out. So, so that's good. But no, I know percentage. It, it's really, I mean, you, you can only ask, right, <laughs> and be denied. Uh, of course, again, if you're VFR, you know, you're, you're able legally to go through the MOA, but... If ATC doesn't want you in there and uh, the guy, you know, the military is doing their maneuvers, maybe it's someplace you don't want to go. But I, I will say this applies to all airspace. A lot of people, when they first look at the MOAs, they forget to look at the altitudes. You know, they see this giant MOA in the way. Oh, I got to go around this MOA. Well, maybe not. You know, if you're flying in a 172 or something, you're planning your flight at 4,500 feet. Well, maybe that MOA doesn't start till six or 7,000 feet like some of them do around here. In that case... It's it doesn't exist for your flight for all practical purposes. Yeah, you know one of the points you made too is, uh, you know, flying VFR though we really need to exercise a lot of caution going through some of these areas. Uh, hopefully, I didn't miss 
misspeak before, you don't need that clearance to go in there. But definitely, uh, you know, as a VFR pilot, you're going to go look at those uh, MOAs and find out if they're active, and it's a good idea. Maybe to navigate around them, but but look at the altitudes. That was very, very good point, uh, Russ. Yeah, and so the altitudes are very important. And But Bill had mentioned what happens when they grow, and they grow higher. Uh, MOAs really are only... A, uh, a thing below 18,000 feet, below flight level 180, uh, because, well, above that is Class A airspace, right? So, Class A airspace, everybody has to be IFR. With you know, there's a, f- a few exceptions, I guess, in there, but but everybody's got to be IFR. So there are no MOAs per se above 18,000 feet. I think I got this right. If I'm getting this wrong, somebody please correct me. But um, when when I was in the in the Air Force's air traffic controller, we had what was called ATCA airspace, ATC assigned airspace. And this is basically an extension of the MOA above flight level 180 for those you know users that need to operate at higher altitudes. And, and they may be doing the very same stuff they're doing below 180. It's not a difference in mission necessarily. There could be. But all it is is essentially a MOA in class A airspace. Uh, again, your IFR up in class A airspace, so there's not the the provision for VFR can just fly through there or anything like that. But uh, so if you're IFR, you might be routed around it. Or again, you could be, like I said, routed through it and they would limit altitudes or something like that. Yeah, good point. Because a lot of, sometimes these MOAs, they can go up higher and they, they have, I think there's one on the East Coast that goes up high on, on a temporary basis. So um, I'm, I'm glad you kind of brought that up. But interesting, though, we don't operate up there that often, but it's good things to think about. Um, but, uh, so Russ, we're talking about MOAs. There's also something else. And I guess, uh, I kind of, Bill, I'm glad you brought us back to MOAs there. Uh, one of the things that we have to look at too are restricted areas. And, uh, I know that Bill, you, you fly around on quite a few of those, don't you, where you're located? Uh, yeah, that's true. I'm, uh, uh, actually, in both my locations, up here near D.C., we've got a lot of uh, restricted airspace nearby. Um, and, of course, you know, near where you are in Florida, uh, there's there's tons of um, restricted areas as well. Um, so there's a little bit of a difference um, that people need to understand between the restricted areas and, and MOAs. And, and Russ hit on it a little bit. The, the MOAs, which are charted on your sectional in the, um, the, the, the magenta, the, the darker, the reddish uh, shading, uh, and and they can be all different sizes and shapes, and, and that indicates to you could be three dimensional, right? As Russ said, you might be able to go over it or under it. Um, they might be different chunks in it, uh, but a VFR aircraft can go through it. The uh, may not be the greatest idea in the world, uh, but legally you can go through it because of uh, the the activity is not um, so dangerous that they they don't allow you to do that. Now a restricted area would have a different type of activity that nobody can go through, IFR or VFR. Um, you're going to get uh, routed around it if you're IFR, and you definitely have to avoid it if you VFR. You can't stray inside that at all. And they can get very complicated. Uh, one uh, area, just as an example, I would fly around uh, quite a bit here. We used to have a site down in uh, St. Mary's, Maryland, it's down on the peninsula of Maryland, southeast of D.C., and that airport's very close to a very complex restricted area surrounding the uh, the Navy uh, Pax River test site, the uh, where they test things like F-35s. And the the approach to the westerly runway at St. Mary's 
but it's almost right up against the edge of that restricted area. So a lot of times you'll you'll see things like that. You have to be you weren't necessarily planning through a um, an area, but it comes very close to your airport, comes very close to your route, and you really don't want to be messing around with uh, grazing it too close. Um, that that place at St. Mary's, if I were coming in from the northwest and they were landing to the west. I'd have to keep those patterns nice and tight. No big B-52 patterns. Otherwise, uh, you know, being wingtip to wingtip to an F-35 might be really cool, but then, uh, you know, guys in black suits come and visit, and it gets all very awkward um, after that. So um, those are also uh, charted, so you can see what the time, the effective time is, and the altitudes of those. Um, And a lot of them might say something like, you know, Oh, 0700 to 1800 local intermittent. So you don't know when it's going to be hot or not. Just assume that it's hot all all during that time. And the local ATC around the area, the approach controller, the center of the tower, will have the um, the actual effective times. So they might be able to tell you, yeah, okay, it's cold for the next hour, so your routing will be okay. You could go through there or not, or that um, that the airspace is hot. So if you're IFR, you have a little bit of that kind of information. Uh, But the FAA controllers can't do much about uh, the activity that's in there. Um, They basically are told um, it's hot from this altitude to this altitude, from this time to that time, and that's pretty much all you're going to get. They they might be able to talk to each other in the case of an emergency, you know, could ring in the line and say, hey, emergency, this guy's deviating for weather and is going to go into the restricted area. be super careful with that because it might take them some time to scramble around and move whatever um, fast movers or whatever's going on in that restricted area out of the way. And vice versa, sometimes a military airplane might spill out of there and, and, the, and those folks have to tell the FAA controllers, they call it a spill out, and same kind of thing, scramble everybody out of the way uh, when that sort of thing happens. But those are pretty serious uh, type of airspace is the restricted area. Um, this very similar airspace... Um, that it's somewhat like a restricted area and somewhat like a MOA is the warning area, which is pretty much the same kind of thing, very hazardous type of activity to uh, civilian aircraft, but it's outside the, um, the limits of the United States. And that's what's called a warning area. You'll see those established out over the, uh, out over the ocean. Same kind of thing, can't fly through their um, IFR because there's not really any control over it. You're out over the ocean. You could theoretically go through there, um, VFR, but you really don't want to. Um, so they, because it's not in the United States, the FAA doesn't have the regulatory authority over it. That's the difference between the uh, with the warning areas. But that's also can be a very hazardous activity, fast moving aircraft. Um, Usually, you know, uh, the aircraft carriers do do their work in uh, warning areas, such like that. So you really don't want to be messing around with that. But those are generally uh, off the shore, well off the shore, where typically we're not going with our uh, with our small aircraft. Although the airliners do have to worry about it when the the warning areas are hot. Uh, you know, the going up and down the east coast oh, east coast routes. That's hard to say. Um, you know, from the northeast down to Florida, you go offshore, and there's uh, there's big chunks of warning airspace out there that you. Uh, the airline guys do have to worry about. Um, so uh, that's the the restricted areas. Gave one example like that. Again, you know, keep careful eye on them. They can get very complicated. Uh, three dimensions, lots of little chunks in there. You might see, you know, restricted area. You know, one two three, one two three a, one two three b, one two three c. All little chunks of the same thing with different effective altitudes and um, and what they're doing. Um, and those are charted 
with the blue hashed um, lines and can be in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. I'm glad you brought up the warning areas, by the way, because interestingly, that goes out way out over the water. Uh, oh, yeah. I know we, you know, at my job, I we fly around those, and they, you're way out there, and you don't even have any, uh, no VHF communications. They, they go, you know, very, very far out, and it's tough to navigate through them sometimes. You can get uh, get clearance through some of those spaces because of the fact that you know there's some weather, but in general, they're ginormous, like you said on the East Coast. Uh, the warning areas, and it's quite a bit of uh, navigating. To get around those is a lot of extra gas, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Victoria, you know, uh, I know in your area you're not very far up from uh, our friend Bill here, but you do have some, I think, some somewhat unique airspace where you are. I think um, in a, a large prohibited area. I can't remember what it is, but tell us a little bit about that and what uh, in that area what you need to do to fly around that. Yeah, Frederick Airport is kind of squeezed in between two very special areas. Uh, One is the special flight rules area surrounding D.C., and the other one that actually is probably the most confusing for people and the one people um, tend to nick the most is P-40, and that's a prohibited area over Camp David. And P-40 is just about five miles, and it goes up to 4,999 feet. But on top of it is a restricted area going all the way up to 18,000 feet. And that's a good, you know, we have markers. We know where to avoid that, when to avoid it. However, when the president is actually visiting Camp David, it changes. And restricted area 4009 actually gets bigger. um, And it can, it just hits just outside of Frederick airspace and it actually goes over a little bit of Hagerstown airport. And if you don't check your NOTAMs or call flight service before going, it's really easy to enjoy your flight and not realize that, hey, restricted area 4009 is a lot bigger and you could um, be nicking an area that an F-16 will say hello to you very shortly. Victoria, how do you mitigate that risk um, to make sure you don't bump into that airspace? So what I always, when I'm in that area, so our um, training area that we fly in, and most people go up there, the West Practice area is really close to it. So we know these borders where the roads are before it's expanded and things like that to look out for. And uh, if you're just transitioning airspace, I would suggest having um, flight following. You can ask uh, what's going on. So the, that's a, a very unique area there. And again, uh, NOTAMs are important to read as far as P-40 uh, and uh, P-4009, <laughs> which overlies at R-4009 that becomes P-40. Uh, so it's really important to, to definitely mitigate that risk uh, by talking to uh, you know air, the flight service, going on NOTAMs, et cetera. But that's, that's a really good point that you made there, Victoria. Anyway, moving on to the towards the west, there's a place I used to fly out of in uh, Salt Lake City, and I know Sean has been in that area. There's some very unique airspace there, and just uh, beautiful mountains. But uh, navigating some of that can be pretty tricky. Sean, you you've got some cool airspace there that you have to navigate around. And what kind of uh, airspace is it? For sure. Um, so there are several restricted areas out uh, over what's called the West Desert of Northwest Utah. It's sort of between Salt Lake City and Wendover. 
And um, it's it's called the Utah Test and Training Range. Uh, and when I've been around Hill Air Force Base up there, they kind of talk about how this really is kind of a treasure for the Air Force. Um, it's, uh, according to Wikipedia anyway, the uh, largest um, supersonic authorized uh, area in the contiguous U.S. So they can do a whole lot of training out there. Um, before I moved out here, I honestly didn't realize there was anywhere you could go supersonic over land. Um, and have since learned that uh, that out there over that West Desert area inside those restricted areas, uh, the, the jets that fly out of Hill and then other jets that come in from other bases to do training out here do that all the time. Um, so we've got uh, restricted 6404, 6406. If you go on your sectional or you go on four flight, you can kind of see the dimensions of these. And um, they're pretty big. In a lot of cases, I'm looking at one of them right now, it's from the surface all the way up to 58,000 feet. Um, and so there's a lot of really interesting activity that goes on out there, whether it's um, exercises, training missions. Uh, I believe uh, the Air Force does a lot of sort of dogfighting practice out there. And they also do a lot of weapons testing out there. Um, and so when you get into the sectional and you look closely at it, you'll notice it's kind of divided into a northern and southern uh, area. And there's a little sliver uh, just above Interstate 80 between Salt Lake City and Wendover uh, that uh, is free of any restricted areas. So uh, Wendover is a pretty popular cross-country spot uh, for people who are flying out of Salt Lake. And uh, as long as you're you know, using good pilotage and dead reckoning, you know you're over I-80 uh, looking out the window, you know that you're uh, staying outside those restricted areas. So it's nice there's a little bit of a carve-out right there to kind of get through. Um, but uh, it's it's really interesting. It's you definitely want to stay on your toes when you head out into the practice area. Um, you're not too close to it, but you could easily start drifting over near it if you're not too careful. You know, one of the things I forgot to mention is that uh, if you're listening right now and you're in front of your computer, it's a great idea to pull up one of your charts or your online, uh, you know, whatever you use, ForeFlight, et cetera, to follow along with this. And I uh, kind of wanted to mention that in the beginning because a lot of the stuff we're going into is really descriptive. If if not, go back and check these out. I mean, we're going to have some links in, in the show notes to where you can actually look at those and some links to the charts. We'll zoom into that. Uh, but this is, you know, it's really cool to find out about some of these more unique types of airspace. Uh, one of them one I wanted to mention, but I think Tom or Bill is the one that jumped on that. There's one that's kind of cool up in the uh, in the panhandle here, uh, and and that's Tom. Did you want to take that one, or did Bill want to do that one? I thought that was kind of a a cool little sliver. If you get a chance, or you're looking at charts, make sure you go to the panhandle. Yeah, this is Tom, and I think I'll take it. And and it's um, if if you get on a sectional chart and look at um, the northern part of Florida, there's a military training route that goes across the top of the state, and is flanked um, uh, by ten miles on either side of the military training route by black hash marks. And I bring it up because it actually came up on one of my check rides. I think it was. Was, might have been my private or maybe it even was my CFI. I remember a DPE specifically asking me about it. Now it's marked on the edge of it only as a special use military or a special military activity um, area. And you're supposed to contact Gainesville Radio and, and, and get information about it. Um, the corridor is not very high up off the ground. It actually goes like only between uh, 3,000 and 5,000 feet or 3,000 and 6,000 feet most of the way across it. And it literally goes all the way from the Atlantic across the top of the state and out into the Gulf of Mexico. 
And they basically used this as a corridor, um, as a military route to get from the Atlantic out into the Gulf. Um, there was a rumor at one time that, you know, um, yeah, I have no idea if there's any validity to it at all, but they said they were using it to practice chasing missiles. They would shoot them off from a, a ship out in the Atlantic and shoot them across the state and out into the Gulf and send jets after them to chase them down. Um, you know, it, it sounds like uh, good media to me, but um, either way, um, I know uh, I've talked to several pilots that have been um, stopped before, that they were at a certain altitude and ATC has asked them to hold up, that they couldn't let them cross over it because there was activity going through there. And um, they made them wait for a little while, actually put them in a little holding pattern and then released them to go through. So, um, yeah, that, and it's just an odd one. And it's odd because it has those black hash marks. And other than the box stating that it's a, a special military activity area, there's no other information about it. And they can find that again on their sectional charts. Where? Uh, that's in the, I, I believe it's part of the Jacksonville sectional. It's at the upper part of the state of Florida. Cool. That's, uh, yeah, I wish we had some video or pictures here, but I, again, we'll have some links in the show notes. Uh, that's pretty cool. I think, Bill, now, did you have another one you want to mention before we move on to the next thing? Well, kind of, yeah, sort of to piggyback off of Tom's um, uh, special use there, we were um, looking at that. It's, um, I think, Tom, this one is is drones, um, not your DJI Phantom drones, but big, serious military drones go through this one. Um, and it is true, uh, Tom mentioned uh uh, a military training route. That's kind of what I wanted to piggyback on off of here. Um, those can actually be used for uh, missiles. I remember years, many years ago, when I was up north, uh, there was a, a route used uh, for cruise missiles in Maine. Um, naturally, the seaplane pilots were not real thrilled about that, and that was kind of a controversy. But uh, military training routes are the little skinny black lines that go through um, various areas like that. Um, and as Tom mentioned, there's one right through the center of that, um, that thing that goes across Florida. Um, but they're all over the place, crisscrossing the country, a very fine gray line on your chart um, with the letters either IR for um, instrument or VR for VFR, military training route. And these are routes that uh, various military aircraft use for training um, at high speeds, um, over 250 knots below 10,000 feet, so going faster than the normal speed limit. Um, could be IFR if they're on the IR route, so they will be following um, instrument flight rules. They, they could be going in the clouds, even though they can be pretty low. Um, on the VR routes, they'll, they'll fly um, in weather as low as 3,005, but remember, they're going real fast, too. They're not, they're not keeping it below 250 knots. Um, the numbers give you a clue as to what's happening in those um, routes. Uh, if the uh, if the the route uh, ends in four digits, that tells you that the activity could be happening at or below fifteen hundred feet AGL. So pretty low. These often can pass very close to an airport as well. So you do want to be careful about that. And then. Uh, an ATC usually doesn't know anything at all about a VR route. They do often know about the IR routes because they have to keep separation from that. Um, and the ones with three digits um, are above 1,500 AGL. The, uh, the AIM doesn't tell you what the ones with two digits are. I think those are higher altitude, too. Um, but the, uh, that leads us to one of the things that I did want to bring up. We're talking about avoiding the special use airspace and the hazards therein. Um, 
it sounds like we're talking about a pretty a downer kind of subject here and everything. But in fact, I did a little bit of research, and there's been very, very few um, actual incidents or, or bad situations with people um, in special use airspace. There are a number of um, occasions where pilots do get uh, a violation from the FAA. Um, a study back oh, a while ago, over 10 years ago, not too long after um, 9-11, showed something like a 1,000 violations of special use airspace a year. But uh, fortunately, very, very few um, actual incidents um, or, or collisions uh, between our general aviation aircraft and, uh, and military aircraft. But a military training route was involved in one um, that I just made a, a note of down in our area in Florida, not far from Sarasota back in 2000, a flight of F-16s um, entering a military training route. They were descending into it and maneuvering and getting ready, uh, collided with a Cessna operating VFR uh, down southeast of the Sarasota area. So it does behoove us to be very careful around these areas, um, pay attention to them. I do uh, put a link in the show notes for the full accident report on that, and it, it has discussed a lot of different factors um, that the, uh, the limitations on what the pilots and the fighters could do, obviously limitations on what anybody in the uh, Cessna can do. Um, honestly, you know, if you're moving along at Cessna speed and somebody says an F-16 is coming at you, there's not a whole lot you can do, all right? It's like saying, here comes a bullet. Um, but there was a lot of good lessons in there that um, I think people can, um, can take away from that, uh, you know, not the least of which being very aware of those, uh, those kind of airspaces, um, whether they're the routes or the, or the big blocks like the MOAs and restricted areas we've been talking about. Many times those routes connect those areas. And, exactly. You know, you and look at them all between. I think that was one that was between the McDill, uh, both McDill Air, Air Force Base and the McDill uh, restricted and MOA. Uh, so that that's actually one of those. I love that you brought that up because it, it makes us feel a little more positive about the fact that there is not you know too many really bad incidents that happen. Uh, one thing that is bad that can happen that is to us personally as far as our certificates are concerned, especially when you bump into things like prohibited areas. And uh, many of us may not realize that they're out there. So I, I highly recommend people really looking at their charts and, and making sure that prohibited area could grow into a much larger one, just like Victoria said, similar to a prohibited area near where I used to live in Texas. Uh, it actually grew rather large. And uh, one of my friends flew into that one. I also have a friend that flew over the White House uh, accidentally, and in those both of those cases, every time you hear about that, it wasn't you know not an accident, et cetera. But you do have those people that Bill talks about in those those dark suits. They come to your house, they visit with you, they have a long talk, and then the next person that comes up is uh, you know the the prohibited area uh, restrictions where you know the, your license is taken away. Uh, those uh, those are usually it's uh, some kind of security they'll come see, and then the next thing's the FA. And in both those instances, actually, I know with three, they took away all their licenses, had to start over. And one was a commercial pilot, one was an ATP, and they had to go back and get their private license and, and back again. So not to be too much of a downer, but please, if it's a prohibited area, any kind of airspace, uh, be careful out there. Not just only for your safety, but also for your certificate, of course, uh, in flying in and around those areas. Um, Going back to all the different uh, special use airspaces, I know we've talked about some really, uh, really cool little examples, and I really highly recommend it, you know you going and taking a look at some of those. But uh, the control firing areas, I know I mentioned that before, they're usually not charted on there, um, and it's really 
one of the things that we need to look at is making sure that we, when we do, you know, fly through these areas, we kind of know they're there. It's nice to know, but they're they're on the ground with radar and uh, people physically looking to make sure that uh, you're going to be safe there. So uh, anyway, the uh, and moving on to some of these others out there, it's really really cool. Uh, but one of the, and Bill, going back to what you said as far as the airspace is concerned, I think it was your point uh, is. When you're getting close to these aerospaces, give it a wide berth. I know we talk about ADSB and um, and then our GPSs being a lot more accurate. Well, at times we do get too close and we bump into airspace and we get a phone call, and that's uh, something we don't want to have happen. And I know, uh, Russ, uh, I think you were going to bring this point up as far as airspace. Uh, and I know, I know Bill talked about it, but as far as you're concerned, what do you do to mitigate that, that problem where we kind of cut it close? Well, so the, the, the problem is one of technology really. And, uh, you know, we all have you know, iPads, you know, with GPS and it's given us allegedly, you know, five meter accuracy and this kind of stuff And we've got our panel mounted GPSs and it's got the, the restricted area or the prohibited area, whatever shown on it. And so what do we do? We, you know, we rubber band our route. So it like just grazes the edge of that prohibited area or restricted area or warning or whatever. And, you know, we're looking at our map. Hey, I'm clearing it by, you know, a thousand feet or something like that. Right. So I'm good. I'm good. So then we go fly on our way. And then we, then later we get, you know, called by ATC or the, you know, whoever the black suits show up or whatever you were saying. Why? Well, yeah, that's great. We may have five meter accuracy on our GPS or whatever, but who is really making this call? Well, it's somebody with, you know, ATC or it could, you know, could be, uh, you know, one of the other government departments that are, you know, providing, you know, security and such. So think about an ATC radar, right? You know, they might be looking at 40 miles, 50 miles, a hundred miles of airspace and your dot on that scope might be a mile wide. And here you are trying to skirt, you know, 500 feet away from this restricted area, your big dot on that scope goes right through the, the, um, through the restricted area. And you're going to have to then try to prove that you weren't in it. That that's, that's a hard sell. I would not try to, uh, not try to cut it that close, go out a couple of miles at least. So you don't have that kind of, uh, kind of a problem. Um, again, this, this is one of technology. Yeah. Maybe you weren't actually in there, but you know, it's sure going to look like you were. And that's actually a great point. And, uh, you know, that actually happened to my friend in the prohibited area in Texas. He was like, no, on my chart, I was like right near the edge. I was like, yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> you were right near the edge. We wound up uh, flying together for many months because of that. I loved flying with him, but uh, it was because he couldn't fly for many months in his airplane that he just purchased uh, because he did exactly what you were saying. And uh, we do. It is a technology issue, isn't it? You know, it really, well, really yeah. is. Uh, how, how wide is the line on the chart, right? Right. <laughs> <You> know, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't 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 cut it that close. No, that's for sure. Um, you know, I think one of the ones as far as areas are concerned that we didn't talk about. I love that McPron thing. I think uh, was the last one is uh, the the uh, areas that actually we can uh, were requested to stay out of there, 
but we also can be mandated to stay out of, and that's called those national security areas that are uh, can be depicted or not, uh, but they're usually asked to to not fly in those areas, but there is the possibility that the government can say, yes, you cannot fly in those areas, uh, and uh, they can do it but through regulation, and you definitely, again, all this stuff we're talking about is going back to NOTAMs. You know, make sure you check your NOTAMs, talk to the controlling agencies, et cetera. These can pop up at any time. Usually they don't, uh, you know, right away, but you'll you usually know about them, but sometimes they do very, very rarely. I mean, it's gotten a little bit better uh, since 9-11, you know, where uh, those have been popping up very quickly, but national security areas, uh, control firing areas, uh, and uh, and all those different, and, and if, Tom, if you don't mind, could you go back to that acronym that you said again and kind of review that so to make sure we got through all of them your scottish shrimp or whatever it was mcbron is the military operations areas controlled firing areas prohibited areas restricted areas alert areas warning areas and national security areas and i think we've covered all of them except for the alert areas i don't know uh-huh. that we spent too much time on those but they're basically just areas where they'll give you an alert. Um, I know that we have one of them down in the South Florida area and it's an alert area and it's um, like east of the Miami area. And basically what it is, is it'll uh, have the alert area and it has a little uh, warning box in there. And what the warning box said is there is a high activity of flight training, concentrated flight training in that that area. And it's an area where you need to really pay attention because there's a high concentration of student pilots in that particular area. So, um, but I think we covered all the rest of them. Cool. And by the way, we kind of didn't mention this as far as the uh, special use airspace. It's in the AIM, um, Chapter 3, Section 4, and uh, we talk a little bit about all those. So go back there and review it, uh, and ta- it talks a little bit about that. Also, a- another really cool thing uh, that I think you should go check out is uh, is in one of the FAA orders, and I can't remember, it's 7,000-something. It talks a little bit about the special use airspace and some of the uh, different controlled firing areas and all. It's kind of fun to go through that if you're really bored. You're not... <laughs> Like you can't get to sleep at night, I guess. You can see all the different ones that are depicted throughout the United States. And I always like to kind of go through there and look at who is the, uh, where's the president, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, where uh, where are the past presidents? Because a lot of times there's a lot of prohibited areas that are circling those towns. Uh, and, you know, we kind of were playing this game the other day, you know, Try to figure out who's there and why it's a prohibited area, that type of thing. So uh, really neat stuff, guys. I, I think this has been terrific talking about special use airspace. Again, we need to review that in our aim. I think uh, one of the things that's most important I've been hearing from everybody here is talking about, you know, give it a lot of room, you know, a lot of room as far as any type of airspace, not just special use airspace, but any type of airspace. Cause you know, as Russ said, it's technology is can, uh, is our friend. Yes. But it also can lead us down a path that could get us into a little bit of trouble. So uh, terrific topic here. I think uh, we've, we've covered most of this. I think there are some other different things that we could talk about as far as uh, different cases, et cetera. We're going to have some of those in, in the show notes, Bill, I was wondering, uh, we do have a couple are there in the show notes. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of them. We don't have to go into a deep dive, but maybe uh, kind of summarize a few of them. Uh, sure, sure thing, uh, Carl. Like I said, we uh, there's there's about a about a thousand violations of air of uh, special use airspace a year, but only a few have turned into anything um, catastrophic. Um, but there, there's some good learnings there um, in military civilian uh, conflicts. Um, I mentioned the Sarasota uh, collision back in 2000. Um, there's another. Um, 
collision in uh, South Carolina, a town called Monk's Corner, South Carolina, a few years back. Again, an F-16 and a Cessna. They, uh, there's a final report on that uh, that's out as well. Some, some communications issues with air traffic control involved in that one. And there's a link there to the, the final report that you can all look at. Uh, one that did somewhat involve special use airspace down in Russ's neck of the woods in Oklahoma between an air tractor, crop duster aircraft and a T-37 uh, that was transitioning uh, back to an MOA, I believe. Um, and again, the, uh, the full report's linked there. And uh, a very tragic one from many years ago, back, I want to say in the 80s, uh, an F-4 Phantom and a Beach Baron off the coast of North Carolina um, had to do with uh, the, the air defense identification zone and uh, some other uh, airspaces off there. And again, breakdowns in communications as to just who was doing what. So, you know, we put these out there so that uh, that's the whole reason that they, uh, they exist is so people can kind of glean some lessons out of them. And so you can see what does uh, happen when it can go wrong. So those will be linked there for you you know in all these bill i noticed a trend it's some really really fast aircraft uh you know colliding with some pretty slow aircraft yep yeah absolutely and uh and and there seemed to be a common theme in a number of them too about just communications knowing what's going on um around you um so uh i think you can uh, learn a lot from that yeah, and I appreciate you putting those uh, in the show notes for us, and uh, that that's been you know really awesome. And some of these things are are really great tools for us to learn from. Uh, and I think these are the type of things that we need to do is go back and think about those. And uh, one thing I'd like people to do, if you could, you know, write to us, go to our contact page, tell us a little about some of the unique special use airspace you have in your area, and maybe some of the things you can learn uh, from what we talked about, what you might do a little bit different when you're operating around special use airspace. Hopefully you'll give it a wide berth and also make sure that you contact the controlling agency and make sure if it's hot or not, uh, especially with those restricted areas. Because many times the, the military operations areas are next to restricted areas that also those restricted areas can be next to prohibited areas. So look closely at that chart. That's really, really important. Well, guys, it's been a great discussion, and uh, we could talk for hours about the different types of special use airspace, and I hope you, the listener, have been able to follow along maybe with your charts. I should have mentioned that in the beginning, maybe to pull out your charts and stuff like that, but this has been a real good uh, learning experience for all of us. I love the McPron thing. Uh, I don't think I've ever used that before, but uh, I am definitely going to start using McPron, the Scottish shrimp. I just can't get that out of my head. Thank you very much, Tom, but uh, but I will definitely be using that <laughs> with all my students. So, uh, <laughs> that's good. Our picks of the week. Let's move on to our after landing checklist and the picks of the week. So uh, let's see. Picks of the week. I'll start off uh, with the first pick of the week. There's there's this organization that I joined, which I absolutely love reading their magazines. You can ask my wife because every time that magazine comes in the mail. I'm reading it from from start to finish, and that is the magazine written by the Piper Owner Society, piperowner.org. Even if you're not somebody that owns a Piper, you probably have flown one or you're doing training in one, you don't necessarily have to own the Piper to be part of that, just like the Cessna owners or the Cirrus Owner Society uh, organizations. Those are great organizations because they, they actually get into some deep dives within 
uh, different systems in your aircraft or operational procedures. And what's really cool is when you join, you actually get to go on and check out some of the forums. And uh, there's some really, really good mechanics and uh, people that have been operating aircraft for a long time that can kind of discuss the issues they've had. I know I went through an issue with a part and uh, got on there and and lo and behold, there's somebody who had the same problem I did. So those, uh, and in general, we can talk about any organization, but PipaOwner.org, the other really cool thing about these owners, organizations, and you see them in EAA and stuff like that, is I love listening to people talk about their airplanes and talk about why it is they like to fly that type of airplane. And uh, I'd like to do a little bit more of that on the podcast too. It's just fascinating to listen to the story. So again, my pick of the week is PiperOwner.org. Go check it out. Think about joining. You'll learn something, that's for sure, and be entertained. Our next pick of the week is from, let's see, Bill, you're the next pick of the week. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. my pick of the week is the Concise Guide series of books. Um, I, I think I linked the Concise Guide to IFR. It's an author named John Ewing. Uh, these are ebooks. You can get them on the uh, Apple um, Apple Store. Um, the Concise Guides are the Concise Guide to IFR, which is a great uh, practical uh, type of guide for folks that are doing, you know, uh, getting their instrument rating, preparing for an IPC, maybe knocking some instrument rust off if they haven't been up in the air for a while. And he also makes some type-specific uh, guides as well, the concise guides to the 172, um, focuses on the later model, the S, uh, uh, SSP models, uh, also the Diamond DA-40 and the DA-42. Uh, very, very nicely laid out, real clean, very practical guides and uh, good price, and you pop them right into your iPad. Awesome. I appreciate that. I'm definitely going to go check that out because I might be flying a DA-40, and uh, I'm going to go download that right now. Um, Is anybody you know? It, it might be somebody. That, well, we're not supposed to give it away. <laughs> we'll report on it, too, afterwards. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next pick of the week is from Victoria. Victoria, you, what is your pick of the week? When in doubt, when I don't have any new technology or books or apps to talk about, I just always go back to work and insurance. Um, we have a special policy through Star Aviation for SAFE members, and that's the Society of Aviation and Flight Educators. And if you're a CFI and a member of SAFE, it's cheap to join, um, you, get a spe- you can apply for a special policy that covers you for physical damage to non-owned aircraft that you instruct in. Um, It also includes property damage, bodily bodily injury liability, and most important, negligence and give a check ride and something later happened and you were to become liable. They said, hey, you instructed this person wrong. You shouldn't have signed them off and found yourself uh, in litigation. This policy will step in and help you out. And I recently created a video that we've posted on YouTube and will be on our website soon talking you through how to pick out your coverages and how to apply for this coverage online. Awesome. Thanks for that. And we'll definitely watch that video and learn a little bit more about that. So uh, check out the link in the show notes for that pick of the week. The next pick of the week is uh, Sean. Sean, what's your pick of the week? 
Hey, um, so the FAA has uh, just in the last few days updated the uh, Aviation Instructor's Handbook. So it's a, it's a book that my head was in for most of last year, um, kind of learning all about the psychology of teaching and, and best practices in the cockpit, that kind of thing. Um, they've just put out a new version. I actually haven't been able to get through it and see what's changed yet, but I'm looking at a uh, release from General Aviation News, and they say that it incorporates new areas of safety concerns, technical information not previously covered, uh, such as referencing the Airman Certification Standards alongside the PTS, uh, teaching practical risk management during flight instruction, and also information for remote pilots. Uh, you know, a whole lot more people are getting that uh, remote pilot uh, certificate these days, and there are all kinds of courses popping up, you know, teaching drone pilots, that kind of thing. It's uh, getting to be a big deal in a lot of different industries. So um, I guess it's uh, going to be a thing to see how best to teach those people who are kind of joining in in a different kind of aviation. So um, it looks like it's already up on the FAA's website and according to GA News it's going to start shipping uh, later in June of 2020 so whenever you hear this this may be after that but something to look for so that's downloadable online as a PDF so go check that out and uh, get that and order it uh, can't wait to go uh, read that I think I downloaded uh, some of the uh, updates from my friend who sent them to me but really cool stuff thanks Sean and our next pick of the week is Russ Russ what is your pick of the week Okay, Carl, my pick of the week is a book called The Lost Airman, A True Story of Escape from Nazi-Occupied France. Uh, the author is Seth Meyerowitz. And th this was a story, he wrote it about his grandfather, who was a, it's been a few, it's been a few weeks, you know, that, that's like 10 books for me. It's been a few weeks since I read it. Let me, let me make sure I get this right. So he was a, a flight engineer and gunner on a, a bomber in World War II, and the airplane got shot down, and he, he parachuted, and he managed to successfully escape and evade capture over occupied France, or in throughout occupied France. And so there was a lot of involvement with the French resistance movement, which I had heard of, but really didn't know much about. So for me, this was a fascinating book. Uh, lots about what, what the French resistance was doing during World War II. I, I mean... You just can't believe some of the things. It's it's like a movie. I mean, you know, pretending he can't speak. So when he's asked questions by the Germans, you know, he doesn't give himself away that he's an American, and you know, hiding out in people's attics and being transferred at night in trunks of cars, and you know, just all this kind of stuff is just fascinating. Um, yeah, I. I don't know a whole lot of, you know, this is basically the first book I've read about this type of thing. So I did see some comments where maybe some of the history and the geography wasn't exactly correct. Um, but uh, the, like I said, the, the, the crew member's grandson was the one writing it and he was basing it all off interviews uh, with people he was still able to find that, that either knew his grandfather as he was evading or, you know, there you know, were told stories by their parents and that kind of thing. So, so really a, a very interesting story, a good book and uh, highly recommended. Uh, again, it's called the lost airman, a true story of escape from Nazi occupied France. Well, thanks uh, again, Russ, for that unique uh, pick of the week. Of course, it's a book, and uh, this is really interesting. Yeah, you're a voracious reader, and I, I think that's so cool, Russ. And I love the books that you you recommend; they are terrific. Except I'm I'm just spending all this money buying all of them, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I am getting. <laughs> I, I there 
there are public libraries around. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they're all closed right now. No, I guess they're opening. But uh, but yes, I, I love to have them on my Kindle too, and I love being able to read them wherever. But uh, some terrific books, and uh, and this really looks like a pretty darn awesome story. So thanks again for that, Russ. Our next pick of the week is Tom. Tom, what is your pick of the week? So, yeah, I was, uh, you know, privy to the topic of this podcast tonight before we aired it. So, um, you know, it got me to thinking about special use airspace. And um, I think we mentioned this in our conversation of uh, finding this information of whether something's hot or not through uh, sua.faa.gov. Um, that used to be before I had ForeFlight, the only way that I could find those different things. And what was cool about this, if uh, when you get to the site and see the map of the country, you can look on it. But on the right-hand side, they're kind of small, you know, um, but there's this area over there that says map layers. And when you click on that, you can actually go on there and there's different places where you can click on there to see when active areas are going to be. In other words, it'll tell you ones that are active right now, ones that are going to be active uh, in less than an hour um, from two to four hours, four to eight hours, or eight to 24 hours. And you can even highlight light all the ones that are not scheduled and it brings up all of them in the country and it's a very interactive way to go through and look and see where special airspace is and how it's going to be used or at least the way that they're planning it that's not to say that they don't have the option to pop one up uh, occasionally so you know i mean checking with atc and and you know going through and and doing your due diligence as you're flying the airplane is still the best way to go but this really gives you a a, a good idea yeah. And it was the old fashioned way of doing it before I had four flight and it showed me all this stuff and I could go to, you know, um, planning views and all sorts of stuff that showed me what was hot and what was not according to what information they have. So that, uh, special use airspace through the, through the FAA is still a pretty handy tool if you start drilling down into it and really, um, using it, um, as effectively as you can. So that's what I'll pick as a pick of the week. <laughs> well, thanks, Tom. I love how you say the old-fashioned way. The old-fashioned way is when we went to visit the flight service station and talked to a briefer to uh, tell us a little bit about the special use airspace. But it, it's amazing. Now we're talking about links as being old-fashioned. It's just amazing how far technology has come, that's for sure. Uh, thanks again for that. And uh, thanks, everybody, Bill, Victoria, Sean, uh, Russ, Tom, uh, and everybody else here at the Stuck Mike Avcast. Really appreciate you listening. And don't forget to check out some of those other episodes that we had here doing deep dives into some of the things that we talk about as far as learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. The other thing I, I forgot to mention, too, is our YouTube. We're trying to consolidate a lot of our YouTube videos. Uh, we'll have a link to what Victoria talked about and trying to share more of those. Easy. Go to stuckmikefcast.com. Click on YouTube. Please visit our sponsor of this podcast, plainenglishsim.com. They're the app-based aviation radio simulator. You can learn both VFR and IFR communications on there. Use a coupon code that was given to us by them. It's plain English sim for a free scholarships guide so you can maybe get another rating, etc. over there at aviationcareerspodcast.com. Click on the scholarships guide there. And all the different uh, links and everything in the show notes will be here on the website at stuckmikeavcast.com. I highly recommend, and my call to action for you is to go out to your charts right now Go out to your local area, try to find some special use airspace, and figure out how you navigate through there, but also try to find something unique, some type of special use airspace you don't know about. Research it. Find out more. If you've got a question, of course, you can send it in to us here at stuckmikeavcast.com. Click on the contact button, and we will try to answer it right here on the show. Well, folks, this has been really a terrific show, and I can't wait to talk to you again 
next episode. Safe flying out there. We'll talk to you again soon. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.